This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The Slate Culture Gap Fest is brought to you by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with a promo code CULTURE. And by Braintree. Looking to set up payments for your business? Braintree gives your app or website a payment solution that accepts just about every payment method with one simple integration. Plus, they'll give you your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free. To learn more, visit braintreepayments.com culture. And by The Message, an original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater. All of season one is available now, so listen and find out why a 70-year-old alien recording seems to be killing people. Search for The Message on iTunes. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest. You need to say the word addition. No, I have to keep singing the fucking theme song. He is to the theme as you are to Jessica Jones. Like, he just wants to go disappear into it. Edition. Uh, it's the that edition. <laughs> are you telling me when and how to host this show, boss lady? Maybe. Edition. It's Wednesday, December 2nd, 2015. On today's show, Creed is the newest film in the apparently unkillable Rocky franchise. It's being greeted as an enormous upside surprise. Did we love it as much as audiences and critics appear to have? And then from the MCU, that's the Marvel Cinematic Universe to you people, um, comes a dusky and lusty and tortured superhero named Jessica Jones, who in addition to keeping this dirty cine honest is now streaming on Netflix. And finally... Is the internet more like tobacco and gambling than we've given it credit for? We discuss a provocative essay that argues that the internet is addictive and perhaps should be regulated. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hello. Hey, how was, uh, how was Thanksgiving? It was delightful. Were you in Boston? or? Yeah, were... we went up to Boston. It's so fun. My parents and my kids are so cute together. It's fucking insane. It seems like one of the main reasons to have kids is the, like, multi-generational interface. <laughs> I like multi-generational interface. Oh, shit. Did I reveal I'm a robot again? <laughs> it would be funny to hear you say that in robot voice. Multi-generational interface. <laughs> Chestnuts roasting in open fire. I often get together with prototype robots, and it's almost <laughs> like family. <laughs> uh, Dana Stevens, did you get together with um, earlier prototype Dana Stevens robots <laughs> and uh, celebrate the holidays? We encountered each other in a virtual space known as family time. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes, I also had frolicking in pies and yards. It was great. Uh, Julia, before we dig in, do we have some uh, business to take care of? Yeah, well, basically, you can't see it, Steve, but the studio is like the scene in Pulp Fiction where the briefcase gets opened and a glowing object fills with radiant light. I have brought into the studio a gift I received for my birthday over the holiday from my beloved husband, which is a copy of Need a House, Call Ms. Mouse. <laughs> which is the book previously discussed on this show, important to me in my childhood, about a, and this is an important descriptor, fictional mouse architect. So we will take a look at Nita House, Call Ms. Mouse, the object with which I have been reunited in our Slate Plus segment today. A.K.A. the book that made Julia cry, cracked her carapace (laughs) at last. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Cool, I'm psyched to do that. All right, well, digging in with today's show, Creed could also be known as Rocky Seven, but that would be a gross act of misdirection. And nothing about this film is misdirected, in my estimation. It is a flawlessly delivered picture, directed by Ryan Coogler from a script co-written by Coogler and Aaron Covington. It stars Michael B. Jordan as the illegitimate son of Apollo Creed. It also stars Sylvester Stallone as Rocky Balboa. What one had every right to anticipate would be nothing but exploitative kitsch is, in fact, a quite gripping story about a young man searching for his own identity and belonging as he connects up with an old man, perhaps a little too settled in his own identity and sense of belonging. Let's listen to a clip. This is taken from the 10th round of the first fight, right? Good call. How'd you know that? I heard about a third fight between you and Apollo. Behind closed doors. That true? How'd you hear about that? Who won? It's kind of a secret. What'd you say your name was? Don. Okay. Well, the girl said you wanted to talk about something? Yeah, I want to talk to you about training me. Training? (laughs) I don't do that stuff no more. Sorry about that. Listen, it's getting kind of late, kid, so I'm going to close up. How good was he? Apollo? Yeah, he was great. Perfect fighter. Ain't nobody ever better. So how'd you beat him? Time beat him. Time, you know, takes everybody out. It's undefeated. Anyway, I got a lot. So when Mickey died, he came and talked to you, right? Talked you out of quitting. Took you to L.A. Trained you. Brought you back. How do you know all this? How do you think? He's my father. Dana, I actually don't know. Did you review this movie? No, I didn't because uh, Aisha Harris really wanted to write about it. So she did and she she loved it. But I'm really glad that we're talking about it because I would have reviewed it if I knew it was going to be so good. As you say, Rocky 7 is not the strongest selling point for a movie. There have been a lot of weak Rockies in the franchise and really arguably only one good one before the first one. So I was also surprised and pleased that this feels like it doesn't actually feel like a franchise membership kind of movie unless it's the beginning of its own new one. Mm-hmm. I went in, Dana, not knowing that the director and co-writer of the film was uh, uh, the same person who had done Fruitvale Station. And 10 minutes in, I was completely floored by the experience that I was having. It was totally unanticipated. I loved the movie. Talk a little bit about Kugler and uh, Michael B. Jordan. Well, Kugler, for one thing, is, is a phenom in his sheer youth. He's 29 now, which must mean that when Fruitvale Station came out, he was about 26 or something. Wasn't that two or three years ago? And uh, yeah. that, that is just very young to have it together, to um, to put together a big sports franchise movie of this kind. It's very, very different from Fruitvale Station, although it does star the same, the same actor, Michael B. Jordan. 
And he and Michael B. Jordan just seem to have an understanding and a chemistry in a way that a director and an actor who have worked together in an intimate way before do. And uh, and this performance that Michael B. Jordan gives is really, I mean, he essentially almost even even shoves Sly Stallone off the screen. I mean, I shouldn't mm-hmm. say that because they have a, a great chemistry and he's not a he's not a screen hogging kind of actor. But this is a star making kind of performance. Maybe I just want that to happen so badly for Michael B. Jordan because he was so great in The Wire. He was so great in Fruitvale Station. Then he made some really poor choices. Uh, or maybe his agent made them for him. But he was in a horrible, horrible romantic comedy called That Awkward Moment, which, thank God, mm. sank like a stone. Then he was in a, a superhero movie, The Fantastic Four, this past summer, in which he played the Human Torch that also sank like a stone. And he sort of his attempts to break into the mainstream have not worked for him yet. But this movie is so crowd pleasing and has such warmth and heart that I think it will maybe finally be Michael B's moment. Right. In a way, you know, the, the story of the movie, I don't think it will be too much of a spoiler to reveal, is, you know, this young man who comes from a great boxing lineage but has been unable to train because um, his mother figure has forbidden him from boxing because of how his father died. So he's tried to train himself. He's done some fighting, but he's, he's totally untested and green. And he ends up at the end of the movie in a fight where he is vastly outmatched and uh, must prove his mettle. Um, Much as Rocky did against Carl Weathers, a.k.a. Apollo Creed, in, in the, the first, first movie. movie. Right. So that's the plot. That's the sensible plot of the movie. But it's also kind of the story of Michael B. Jordan. Like, here's this very talented young actor who's done a lot of great stuff, but suddenly stepping into this role that's like, I am the man like figure of masculinity of America that we all get behind and cheer and champion in this big, bold way. And I sort of liked that parallel. He was so believable as an athlete, too. I don't know how athletic Michael B. Jordan is in his real life, but he doesn't seem to have been artificially bulked up by no. trainers hovering over him to make him look like a boxer. He's a slight guy, but he's really built. And he, he just fights like he's been training for years mm-hmm. and years. Yeah, no, he's exceedingly believable as an athlete. Um, I think two things people have forgotten about the original Rocky movie that that launched this interminable franchise. The first is that the first Rocky movie not only won the Best Picture Oscar, but was kind of a masterpiece. I mean, it sort of, it belongs next to Jaws and Star Wars as one of the foundational blockbuster movies of the 70s that set the course of American movie making, you know, popular movie making, super commercial movie making for the next generation. And the second thing they forget about it is a lot of its appeal. I was talking to a friend of mine earlier today, and we both vividly remember being in sixth or seventh grade when it came out, fifth or sixth grade when it came out. We vividly remember how audiences had a reaction to it that is impossible to describe. People in the final scene of the original Rocky in the movie theaters were literally standing up and cheering It was an astonishingly visceral response that looking back on it is awkward because part of the subliminal message was a white guy, a ham and egger with no chance goes up against an uppity black man, right? And beats the crap out of him. He, he in the original Rocky, it gives nothing away. Forty years later, I hope to say that he loses. But he, you know, he puts up a heroic performance. There was a racial subtext to that movie that gets every ounce of the great white hope narrative that this franchise has displayed over the last forty years is given a heartfelt apology in this version, and is turned on its head so beautifully. Uh, And I'm saying nothing to detract either really from the franchise or the first film because I feel like it got more racially enlightened as it went along. It turned Apollo Creed not only into a human being, but a you know dear, deep friend of Rocky. But this movie is just, to my mind, Dana, this movie is just one flawless gesture after another. It is so beautifully 
and confidently directed. I mean, that this guy is 29 years old and delivering a film of this poise, to me, is astonishing. I really think it, Ex Machina, and Spotlight are three masterful movies, any one of which deserves the best picture. Wow, Steve, that's going some. I mean, I guess I would say that maybe this is just an allergy that I have to sports movies in general, but this movie does have its its stretches of, of corniness. It's extremely well-handled corn, and, and the uplifting ending feels completely earned. But, you know, there certainly are story beats that you can feel coming if you've ever seen a boxing picture or any kind of sports movie before. No, it's true. I mean, Julia, this is the thing. It makes its way along the stations of the Kitsch Cross, but that's just a challenge. And I to meet that challenge, to me with any degree of credibility and heart at this late stage in the history of, you know, self-conscious shit-eating irony. That's just an amazing accomplishment. Yeah, the thing that it does, I mean, I'm like Dana's polar opposite in that I adore a sports movie, even the shittiest, stickiest sports movie. I will weep at a sports movie. Show me a sports movie. I'm a happy woman. But I thought this one, a couple of things made it distinctive. The first was its pacing it was confidently methodical in how it sets up the parts and in some in some moments that feels like you can see the punches coming like oh there's a loud neighbor downstairs i wonder if it will be an attractive woman lo it's an attractive <laughs> woman um you know there's a, there's a couple of moments like that but it really takes its time introducing you to the world building relationships with characters that he meets along the way and making them feel deep and real and important it's not full of deadpan irony and shtick it's not you know, Joss Whedon Avengersing a beloved old franchise and, and kind of undercutting it with, you know, sardonic wisecracks. But it does have this lightness of touch where it mm-hmm. can kind of there's a moment where they go up the steps of the museum and it's handled it's handled with deafness and distinctiveness. But it's not it's not uh, uh, sticky. And there, of course, there are several training montages because, you know, there's going to be a training montage. Mm-hmm. Um, but they do things that are a bit different than the previous movie. And some of them are definitely corny. But there's a very fun training montage I love where, where Sylvester Stallone is essentially reading the paper as Michael B. Jordan kills himself <laughs> on various weight machines and jump ropes. And, uh, and just that image, I think the, the character of Rocky imagined 40 years later is completely consistent with the Rocky Balboa that we know from the first movie. Yeah. Yeah. That he would, for example, take a tabloid newspaper to the graveyard to read it to his wife at her grave. Yeah. Um, and, and so there's this lightness of touch. There's this methodical pacing. I thought actually the way that the boxing itself is shot is great. I mean, so many movies... Movies you watch, whether they're having kind of martial part robot fight scenes or just, you know, fisticuffs, it's so hard to tell what's going on. And the sense of violence and victory is conveyed with a lot of like cross cutting and moving quickly. And then you see someone having lost at the end, but you don't totally understand how it happened. And I also, when I briefly worked at Sports Illustrated Women, which is a magazine that existed for a while, I once went and covered a women's Golden Glove boxing tournament. It's like so fucking hard to understand what's going on in a boxing match when you're watching it if you don't know anything about Right. You don't have slow-mo shots from Martin Scorsese, like letting you see the punch land, right? It's just like it's all happening so fast. was very smart in how the boxing was shot, how it mm-hmm. was done, and how there's sort of moments where Rocky gives him little bits of advice that serve both to inform what he does, but also inform what you're watching for, so you can kind of see whether he achieves the thing. Like, it just... It just was done so well. Shout out to the camera woman there. I have to say, Maurice Alberti, who who was behind the camera, also shot The Wrestler, which I think is another great sports movie that shows yes. a sport that you don't often see from the inside and sort of shows how it moves and, and how it works. And yeah, she's great. 
I totally agree. But boxing is all about these tiny windows of vulnerability opening up through which comes a pile driving fist. And when you throw a punch, you open that tiny window of vulnerability and who's going to exploit it first. Uh, All of the Rocky movies depicted boxing with an enormous amount of exaggerated uh, acoustics and gore. I don't think they were traditionally realistic as boxing movies. This one is until the final scene. And then he gives you, I mean, the ratio of cheese to steak on this Philly cheesesteak to me is just (laughs) perfect. And there's just that like the cheese comes in at the end, but it's totally been earned out by the steak. It's cheese whiz, I believe, on a (laughs) cheesesteak. And I'm sitting there the whole time thinking, give me the music. I need the music. You got to give me the music. Like they they just had me so fucking primed and the music comes on and I'm like, this is you, you fucking delicious. You <laughs> delivered on this completely. And then the steps, you get the steps. It's like, you fucking delivered this. You got this to me through layers and layers and layers of self-consciousness and contempt. You fucking got to me with the fucking music and the steps. He found your vulnerability and he whacked you. <laughs> I showed the tiny the tiny window of vulnerability and it fucking pile-dried me. <sighs> I had forgotten what pleasure it is to be in Sylvester Stallone's company. I think, you know, he's sort of synonymous with like Schwarzenegger, like Lunk with Pecs type acting. If you haven't recently watched some of his movies, I think it's easy to forget what a comedian he is. He's just, mm-hmm. he steals a few scenes in such a delightful way in this movie. It's, it's true. He has incredible comic timing. I think it's David Edelstein in New York Magazine that points this out in his reviews that there's sort of two on-screen Stallones and it's really a shame that there's not more of the first one who is Rocky Balboa himself as we sort of see him in the first movie and in this movie and in the ones that are less grandiose and, and puffed up. And then there's the Rambo Sylvester Stallone mm-hmm. or the one in some of the worst Rocky movies. You know, the one who's who's just kind of a steroided out gun-wielding right, action testosterone hero. made flesh. And has no vulnerability in humor. Yeah. Here, here. Okay, the movie is Creed. It stars Michael B. Jordan. It's directed by Ryan Coogler. Uh, we all thought it was terrific. You should go see it. And then after you have, let us know what you think of it at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? We have a sponsor this week, Steve, that may be a solution to your December problems because one big December problem is what to get the people in your life for the holidays. And if you are me, you have many, many things that you want to get for the women in your family, and it is harder to buy presents for men. Perhaps that is a woeful gender stereotype, but I have all kinds of scarves and trinkets and things that I'm planning to get my sister, but it's harder to buy for men. Here is an idea for such gifties. The Harry's Holiday Shaving Set comes with a copper-plated razor handle, a couple of five-blade cartridges, shaving cream that smells and feels great, and a cool travel kit to hold everything when you're on the move. And it all comes in a box that looks great, so you won't even have to wrap it if you don't want to. And Harry's actually even has some limited edition gift sets right now that not only deliver the amazing quality and value that Harry's has become known for, and particularly known by Steve for, uh, it also looks fantastic. The holiday shaving sets are at different price points starting at $15. And as a special offer for our listeners, Harry's will give $5 off your first purchase when you go to harrys.com and enter the promo code CULTURE. Steve, would you be delighted if someone in your family or your podcast family gave you a holiday shaving set for the holidays? Uh, You know, I'd be beyond delighted, Julia. And it's because I really think that there are two things plaguing the modern world as we know it. The first is the unkempt and mismanaged cheek. (laughs) And the second is uh, supernormal profits courtesy of oligopoly. And the, the fact that you can fight 
the two defining modern scourges with one consumer product to me is is kind of a revelation. So you should order Harry's. You should kempt up your cheek and strike a blow. Against Big uh, Razor? Ag- <laughs> <laughs> strike a blow against super normal profit, oligopoly profits and cut out the middleman and buy a beautiful product at a reasonable price. Uh, I really like this idea. I'm now picturing the boxing match in which Steve is in the ring against Big Razor and armed with, <laughs> with like a Harry's blade in each fist. He's pummeling a gigantic Gillette man. <laughs> anyway, go to harrys.com right now as a special offer for Slate Culture Gabfest listeners. Harry's will give you $5 off your first order with the code CULTURE. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com and enter the promo code CULTURE. Steve, what are we talking about next? All right, Julia, thanks. Let's move on. Jessica Jones is the new Marvel Studios and Netflix series. It's adapted from a Marvel title of the same name. It stars the formidable Kristen Ritter as Jessica Jones, who, after a dark termination to her career as a superhero, has opened a private detective agency. She is mad, bad, dangerous to know, plus tortured and luscious. Let's listen to a clip. Yeah, and why don't I set this up a little bit first? So uh, the villain we quickly learn in the first episode is a man who is able to will people to do things just by telling them that they want something. He can override the willpower of any of his subjects. It's something that Jessica Jones seems to have experienced herself. And in the pilot, she rescues a young woman from this character, Kilgrave's clutches. So here's a scene with Jessica and the young victim as uh, she starts to explain what's happened. His control, whatever it is, it wears off. But it takes time and distance. So we're both getting out of here. He made me do things that I didn't want to do, but I wanted to. (sighs) What street did you live on as a kid? What was the name? Picture the sign. Harrison? Harrison Street. And the next block over? Florence? Listen to me. None of it is your fault. You don't know. I know. Okay. I know. I want you to say it. None of it is my fault. Say it back to me. It's not my... It's... It's not my fault. Good, that was good. Yeah, I'm glad we chose that scene for a clip because I think it shows really well what's different about this superhero story from other Marvel superhero stories that I can think of. I mean, I was so impatient with the idea that there is yet another Marvel spinoff and so amazed that this show is as as interesting as it is, especially because I think, as you guys know from past discussions, I'm not really into deep mythology shows, and this is a very deep mythology show. It seems like it's going to take a good six, seven episodes for even the most basic secret of what is Jessica Jones's past trauma that she's working through to come out. 
But what you hear in this conversation between the heroine and the victim is this shared experience of trauma that really just seems like it goes a lot deeper than what you generally come across in any kind of action movie, where essentially PTSD or past trauma is used as a quick flashback to explain why somebody is about to get blown away in the present. I think you can say something about this show that would be surprising for any drama on any network and is particularly surprising for something that comes out of the Marvel Universe. But this is a show that is fundamentally about sexual assault and consent and being a survivor of sexual trauma, it seems. And it handles those themes with depth, gravity and sophistication and does not seem to be exploiting them to titillate you, but taking them as a serious psychological subject worthy of inquiry about what it feels like to be a vulnerable woman in the world. And it does it really well. And it's also just an engrossing, dark, scary, tense mystery. I mean, I loved watching it and kind of wanted to just cancel taping of the show <laughs> today so that I could just go watch more episodes of Jessica Jones and be like, sorry, listeners. You're the boss. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> like, we're, we actually, we're just going to, we're just going to stream the audio of episode four instead of our podcast this week. I'm sure that's legal, right? You guys would like that. But it's also like very tense and unsettling and un. Like, it, like you can watch one before bedtime, but more than that, you'll be, like, worked up until three in the morning. But so how does it save itself from being sort of gloomy and brooding and irritatingly Christian Bale-like in its treatment of its dark mm-hmm. anti-heroine? Do how you, does it do, do you that? agree that it does? I think that in general it does, yeah. I don't think that it, it sort of builds her up into this irritating brooder. Mm-hmm. Well, instead of yeah. borrowing from, like, the kind of moody men, like, swirling brandy snifters and staring out windows vibe of Christian Bale movies. It borrows a lot from noir and kind of like the hard-boiled, wisecracking detective type genre, mm-hmm. which is not a not an anti-brooding genre, but it has all that vinegar and the hard-boiledness and the wisecracking that, that can kind of cut through mm-hmm. the real core of hurt at the center of those characters. And, you know, the core of hurt for those, for the kind of classic Bogart type Detective dude is usually not the same kind of hurt that that Jessica Mm -hmm. Jones seems to be processing. But that's like a trope we're used to that's used skillfully here. I don't know, maybe. Yeah. No, it's fascinating, right? Because, okay, we're super late in the cycle of superhero movies and franchises, and there seem to be two broad ways to go, right? There's portentous or shit-eating irony, Nolan or Whedon. And this has elements of both, but they're balanced against one another beautifully against the background, Julia, exactly as you say, taking the Bogart, the wounded male cliche character, flipping genders and making the source of the wound, the kind of romantic primal wound, uh, sexual assault, and thematizing the whole show around that, casting brilliantly this woman who I remember, we all remember, I'm sure, from Breaking Bad, in which it was clear she was about to become a big star. They found the perfect vehicle for her. This show found the perfect actress to inhabit that part. It's a total success. It's the new Gone Fishing. I think you should cancel the Gap Fest this week and we all go finish watching the, uh, we binge it. We just go and binge it heroically. I think it's a it's, terrific show. I think it's too late for that. We already put a, a halfway decent Creed segment to bed. I think we got to soldier through and keep talking about the show and then we, then we can go watch it later. 
And maybe one reason, Steve, that it doesn't feel Whedon-like or Nolan-like is that the showrunner is a woman, something that's increasingly not unusual, but still in, in the Marvel world, fairly unusual. Her name is Melissa Rosenberg, and she's mainly worked before as a, as a TV writer and a writer on the Twilight Saga, although she also wrote one of Julia's favorites, uh, Step Up, the step dance movie. Love Step Up. Gave the, gave the world Channing Tatum. Never forget. Yeah, I mean, I think there's. A, I think Kristen Ritter is amazing. I think it, it, the movie does feel very much shaped by a female worldview. I think it's also really interesting the way in which the show takes consent both as its explicit subject and the power to override consent as the explicit superpower of its villain because it does connect and sort of create this electricity with the broader national conversation right now around rape and sexual assault and consent laws and all the rest of it. Although it also does it in a slightly sideways way because the ability to make people who've who don't want to do something feel that they want to do something is sort of a slippery metaphor. It's not, it's not really the right metaphor for rape, although the metaphor is, is still very powerful and the feelings of regret and confusion about their own culpability that the victims have afterward feels incredibly powerful. Right, because Kilgrave, this bad guy who's very convincingly kept at bay and we don't see him very often, he's sort of a Kaiser Soze kind of character where you believe he's scary and powerful because everyone says he is. But he's more than a rapist. In a way, he's sort of a an emotionally abusive partner, right? And there's there's a lot of questions of guilt and, and complicity because you get the impression that Hope, for example, the victim that, that Jessica Jones rescues, was sort of his his girlfriend, right? Was sort of going around brainwashed into to being his partner. And it seems like both Hope, the young woman that Jessica Jones rescues, and Jessica Jones herself w- were a past victim of this sort of long-form mindfuck that Kilgrave en- engages in. Yeah, I mean, it's just a really creepy and great concept for a villain. It's a very scary villain, as Willa Paskin pointed out in a piece on Slate. Part of what makes him scary is the narrowness of the stakes of his depredations like he's not a classic marvel villain who's trying to blow up the galaxy or the world or the planet like the stakes are small and specific he wants to ruin one woman and he wants to do it and he he knows how to do it and it's really fucking terrifying maybe that's why i like this because it's more like a noir Mm -hmm. psychological thriller than like a large-scaled action movie where a bus is going to blow up very soon Although there is a bus accident, but <laughs> don't worry, a bus does flip. For anyone who's worried that there's no flipping buses, there's a flipped bus right there. I think it's in the pilot. Maybe it's episode two, but there's a flipped bus. So rest assured, bus flip fans. All right, let's go. Let's finish the show now so we can go watch the rest. Lovely. I'd like to exit this segment by pointing out what has happened to our world that a harumphing naysayer such as myself on a weekly basis now finds two or three cultural items to exalt over on the show. I think that's a real change. Actually, sincerely, I think that's a real change in the last five years that we've done the Culture Gap Fest. In you or in the cultural landscape? No, I think in the, I absolutely think in the culture. I don't know, Steve. Maybe you're getting soft. Maybe you're, uh, maybe you're mellowing in a Rocky Balboa manner. You need to search within, man. <laughs> I am not getting soft. The culture is getting hard. <laughs> And gem-like, I hasten to add. All right, the show is called Jessica Jones. It's streaming on Netflix. It's from the Marvel Universe, and it's marvelous. Check it out. Tell us what you think of it at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor. Julia Turner, what do we have? 
This episode of the Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Braintree, code for easy mobile payments. Maybe you're working on the next Uber, Airbnb, or GitHub. Then why not use the same simple payment solution that helped them become what they are today? Braintree makes mobile payments so fast, easy, and seamless. Add it to your app with just a few lines of code, and you're instantly ready to accept Apple Pay, Android Pay, PayPal, Venmo, credit cards, even Bitcoin. And if some other way to pay comes along, Braintree will support that too. We should really test that and see, can we get like cowrie shells, basic barter, like goats, <laughs> hunks of hunks of fresh cheese. I would like to be paid in hunks of fresh cheese. Braintree's fast payouts and continuous support mean you'll always be ready, whether you're earning your first dollar or your billionth. See fewer abandoned carts and more sales with Braintree's best-in-class mobile checkout experience. To check it out for yourself, visit braintreepayments.com slash culture. All right, Steve, what's next? All right, moving on. The computer, of course, has become a kind of universal device on which we get news, music, movies, social media, and if you are any kind of a symbolic analyst at all, this convergence may be, in fact, way too harmonic because it links up with our behavioral repertoire and makes us very vulnerable to web designers who make the experience of websites they design very addictive. All of us have an addictive relationship to the net of one kind or another. The question is, how insidious is it, and should it be regulated? This is the subject of a terrific essay in Aeon magazine called User Behavior. Julia, let me start with you. This uh, this uh, essay actually name-checks Slate and talks about the method Slate uses to stimulate more clicks and more time on the website in order to trade such attention for advertising dollars. Did this uh, strike a nerve with you? I'm sorry, Steve. I was checking my phone while you were doing the intro <laughs> and reading on Slack and, and getting a few little dopamine hits from my addictive internet compulsions. Uh, this story made me so mad. It made me so mad in an inchoate way that I'm not sure I will be able to crystallize persuasively for the purposes of this discussion. Uh, and not just because the name checks Slate. I mean, I think... The piece does a couple of things interestingly and makes a couple of provocative proposals that I think are worth considering, but there's also a lot that it leaves out. So the piece observes that many destinations online or on your phone are explicitly designed through user interface design to lure you in and get you to keep using, right? That there's there's a whole kind of culture of user interface design around hooking people on the internet. And he particularly cites a book called Hooked, which was met with positive reviews that purported to teach, you know, web entrepreneurs and other folks to basically get people hooked on an, an infinitely pleasurable or at least distracting or unextricatable from experience on their particular sites and apps, which they can then monetize or profit from in various ways, depending on what the destination is. Uh, and he compares it to the famous Skinner experiments about kind of stimuli and reward. He also compares it to the gambling industry and, and cites the work of a woman who studied how the interface between humans and the machines that they gamble on, particularly slot machines, is its own very complicated ecosystem and points out that generally when we talk about the internet and distraction, we talk more about users and their need for self-control and how they should have a no-phones room or a no-phones day. I mean, you, Dana, have a no-phones day, which we should get to. And we don't think enough about how the big companies and corporations behind all of these sites, including Slate, are actively trying to steal your time and attention. And then he proposes at the end that perhaps uh, we should regulate these sites by having a dashboard mandated that allows you to control notifications. A lot of sites do that, but not all do. Uh, this would mandate that. Or 
by um, mandating the ability to set a lockout period. If I spend more than 50 minutes on Facebook in a day, have it lock me out for 24 hours so I can't waste too much of my time or life there. To me, the most striking and interesting thing here was the observation that in general, when we talk about internet distraction, we talk almost entirely about users and not about the mechanics. I think it really is interesting to think about those mechanics. And I think in general, we as users of the internet are probably less savvy about the mechanics of distraction on the web because it's newer to us than we are in any other form of media. But I was galled by the fact that this essay completely left out all of the other things in the world that vie for our attention for purposes of making money and succeed or fail to succeed through various ingenious designs. Uh, And I don't really believe that technology or the internet is markedly distinct from some of those other venues of distraction and compulsion. And the regulation proposals seemed, even though it is striking to even go there, seemed kind of like weak tea. You're going to mandate that there's a dashboard? Like, ugh, that just seems useless. Mm. Dana, I actually, I thought this was more convincing than Julius giving it credit for. I do think that there's something, and his point is that there's something unique about the internet, the way the internet is designed and the way we use it, that it is structured almost like a slot machine, which is the perfectly designed machine to deliver these variable success hits at just the proper rate to keep you uh, hooked up to them if you have a certain addictive personality pumping them full of coins. Did you find that convincing? Yeah, I think a really key distinction that he introduces is is that this vague villain that we name as the internet and attribute all of these qualities to is in fact just as whatever congressman said a series of tubes right it's just a delivery system and that in fact it's the companies creating products to be consumed on the internet that are building in these um for example the infinite feed refresh you know the idea that you could at the bottom of your facebook feed or twitter feed just keep on going down and down and down and down forever that there's not a moment as there might be at the end of an article, for example, where the page ends and you would have to go back to the top or, or go away. Um, so those those kind of simple design questions are, are what get us hooked into these sites. Then again, as Julia just pointed out, where this article is weakest is in the fixes for, for these problems. For example, email is one of the main things he cites as a, a, a pigeon pecking, a B.F. Skinner pigeon pecking bonanza, right? The place where you can just sort of keep on checking your, your email every two minutes in the hope that some food pellet of reward will will come down. I don't think there's any way anybody's going to build something into their their email that kicks them off for 24 hours, right? I mean, that's our our way of communicating with each other now. Well, and also the thing that he he requests regulation for, which would be like mandating that email systems allow you to uh, determine how frequently new emails are downloaded. Like every email system I've ever used has that. You can set how frequently Mm -hmm. you get a new batch. Like... Most of these things are built into at least one system or another as user interface tweaks. Well, let me, okay, before I respond to this piece, let me throw my precise Luddite credentials on the table. I think if you examine human history, there's always been a need for an excuse to stare vacantly off into space and say nothing and yet not be alone. That, that, That the human need for a hearth is pretty transcendent. So, you know, f- we went from fire to TV to laptop. And I actually think of this as as huge progress um, over the television. I love laptops in the living room as the new hearth. I do not find sitting with a friend with whom I'm quite close, both of us silently on a device, I don't find that detractive or somehow, um, 
antisocial experience at all. I think I think one of the pleasures of human concourse is finding ways to be with other people that don't demand performance or performance of the self. And to the degree that the internet enables that, I actually think it's kind of wonderful. I'm an anti-Luddite in that sense. But then handheld devices are the new cigarettes, just as, as laptops are the new hearth. I think handheld devices are a way of out in the world, constantly distancing yourself from the experience and removing yourself from the experience that you're having in the moment. So I'm kind of, I guess what I would say is I'm a half Luddite when it comes to the internet. So um, slicing that baby perfectly in half, I think, you know, you're going to have the addiction. I think we all have it to a degree. Make it nutritious, right? So Slate or Vox or Arts and Letters Daily, there are ways to go back. I mean, have Interesting correspondences with a wide number of people. It seems to me that's a great, nutritiously various way to have a social life on the internet. So you're not refreshing your email to find something vacuous um, in order to get a crappy little pellet. You, you know, you actually have a a wide and varied correspondence uh, as people have throughout human history. And you know, and similarly, you're going to Slate to find something with a degree of, you know, more than just sort of an informational delivery system, but a unique point of view from Jamel Bowie or, 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 you know, Vox, you know, from Ezra Klein or something. And there's a way to nourish yourself through the addiction to the point where you may not even want to describe it as an addiction. But I, so I guess what I'm saying is that the piece landed for me because it is true that I have those bad habits. And I, I treat the internet as a kind of pellet delivery system that's with me um, for way too much of my day. At the same time, you know, I, I'm not a totally vacuous boob, and I think I manipulate that addiction to my benefit, ultimate benefit. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that's tricky for me here is just like product design. Like in a in a capitalist world where people are either giving you things in exchange for money or giving you things for free in exchange for some other ability they have to monetize their work, whether it's through advertising or data or this, that, and the other. Like those businesses are going to find ways to be attractive to you and try to maximize the time you spend with them in the case of the internet but or TV or the newspaper or you know any any other potential source of entertainment or 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 attention based business right and so the fact that i mean one of the distinctions of working online is that, that there's just much more data you've much more data about what users actually read what they actually like and how they actually behave and perform and one of the reasons that slate was name checked in the article i think has to do with slate's general history and spirit of transparency and self-examination. So Farhad Manju took a look at our readership statistics back when he was our technology critic before he went to the Times and, you know, noted that, in fact, in the Internet, like the average amount of time spent on a piece on Slate, you see a bunch of people who read the piece, you see a bunch of people who get about a quarter of the way through, and you see a bunch of people who kind of hop in and hop along to the next thing. And I think the numbers that he found are, are quite consistent across similar sites to Slate, actually. But like, I, yeah, I spend a lot of time in meetings thinking about both the work that we do at Slate and how it can be as good as possible and, and be valuable to readers and be something that they think, I want to go check Slate. I want to sign up for Slate's newsletter. I'm going to be a Slate Twitter follower and be sure to check out all of the great work that they publish. But I'm also in meetings where we talk through, like, how is the page designed? How are we surfacing additional content for people to read? You know, where do we put the newsletter prompts to make sure that people are prodded to remember that Slate is full of great content on a regular basis so that they can come back more often and spend more time with us and feel like they have a deep and more dependent relationship on the insights of Josh Voorhees and Jamel Bowie to get them through the next 12 months of the election. Like, yeah, I think about how we get Slate users to be ever deeper and more engaged. And I think that the article 
is a little bit like, like presents it as though the internet just like flew in on the clamshell with Botticelli's Venus. And it's just like, whoa, a totally unprecedented problem in like media and consumption and human existence. And it's like, no, businesses have been trying to, you know, maximize the time you spend. Like if you think about all the little things on TV, where the Law and Order rerun as the credits are rolling, they shrink it down to a small screen and the next episode starts right away so that you don't have a moment of thinking, I'm just staring at credits. Now would be a great time to stop watching Law and Order reruns and go fold my laundry or make myself dinner or, you know, crack open that important tome I've been meaning to read. Uh, (laughs) I thought you were going to say crack open that important Cabernet I've been meaning to drink. Both. Have the Cabernet and the tome. You're just like, (laughs) oh, God, what is that body? I think it's in the book. Oh, here I am in the middle of the next episode. I mean, to suggest that there's a particular sinisterness around the way the Internet does it seems odd to me. On the other hand, I realize, Mm -hmm. as I say this, that I'm kind of arguing both sides of the coin. Because the thing that is distinctive about the digital world is that you have the data, you have the ability to understand user behavior and desire at a much more um, detailed level than you ever did when you just thunked a newspaper on their doorstep, right? I mean, Farhad's piece about Slade and and how much, you know, how far into any given story someone reads. Think about how far into any given story that appeared in that thunked newspaper someone used to read. Some people read the whole thing cover to cover. A lot of people scanned, 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 and then read the few things that were most of interest to them. Yeah. And there's a Pavlovian rhythm to everything, including a Keats sonnet, right? To anything that plays on our expectations in a pleasing way and familiar way. And also, you know, the self-harm has to be serious for anything to be regulated. I mean, I think in an open society, that's where the bar is set. And I just don't know that the self-harm, you know, being inflicted uh, by people with a internet addiction is really high enough to seriously consider, you know, any kind of tobacco-like or, or even gambling-like regulation. That said, I thought this was a beautifully written and beautifully argued piece that was open in its disposition so that even as one disagreed with it, you felt as though you were invited to disagree with it and think along with it. So in that sense, I thought it was an entirely successful um, pigeon pellet. Yeah, I was glad I spent all that time on Aeon helping them monetize however they monetize. (laughs) I mean, I do think the regulation point is interesting. Even with tobacco, you know, the regulations have consisted of some monitoring of the actual nicotine content, mandating labeling, and a limitation on the selling age, right? And then there's a tax. So those those are the regulations, basically. Around gambling, obviously, it's limited to certain areas and regions, and then there are age limitations as well. But even those regulations are not, for substances or experiences as toxic as those can be, are not super pervasive. And for something that's a little bit like I mean, think about uh, people can come become addicted to all kinds of things, right? Like there's also sex addiction. You're going to regulate sex like it doesn't this feels to me a little bit more like that, like people with compulsive tendencies can get into real trouble. But isn't it a little bit more, at least as what you call weak tea, the very mild fixes that he proposes are much, much more about self-regulation. It's sort of more like Mm -hmm. a fast food restaurant posting the calories on the menu, right? They're not saying you can't have a Big Mac. They're just saying if you eat a Big Mac, you know, it's going to be whatever, half your daily calorie requirement. I I could imagine there being especially social media type sites or sites that are basically built to keep on people on them refreshing and refreshing as long as possible, they're being built in some sort of self-regulatory dashboard, you know, something that either times you out or at least logs you your time so that at the end of the day, you can look and say, oh, God, I did spend three hours on Twitter today. Mm. 
Um, all right. Well, this is certainly, hopefully, one of those um, uh, segments on our show that generates a lot of user um, listener responses. So go to Facebook.com. Tell us what you think of user behavior, the very good essay by Michael Schulson on Aeon, and what you thought of our discussion of it. All right, Julia, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other other sponsor. What do we have? Today's show is brought to our listeners by The Message, an original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, We're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now... Um, Sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices. Music. Breathing. But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we do our endorsements, but we have a little bit of business before that, right, Julia? Yes. Alas, I have a correction. We repeatedly refer to Man in the High Castle as a Netflix show. It is an Amazon instant show. It's an Amazon show. My husband actually told me that we were repeatedly referred to it as a Netflix show. And I was like, no, we didn't. I feel like we did that once and we caught it and we corrected it. And he was like, no, you repeatedly called it a Netflix show throughout the whole segment. And then uh, listeners on the Facebook page corroborated my husband's unlikely story. So Man in the High Castle, what if Nazis had won? That is an Amazon production. All right. Well, now we can endorse day not What do you have? All right, Steve, you're going to make fun of my endorsement because it's goofy, but I'm going to just say that Julia has done endorsements exactly this goofy before. If we have anyone who does sort of food cuisine technique endorsements, it's Julia Turner, right? She's the one who says, like, put lemons in a blender with sugar. <laughs> that was so fucking good. That sounded good. so good. I haven't I got, made it yet. I got more responses on that endorsement than on many others. I'm going to try that very soon. But you agree, right? Julia has gotten away with plenty of goofy food technique endorsements in the past, I'm right? I'm worried. I'm worried about where this I, I, is going. I feel like this is a Perry Mason moment. Moment. You agree, sir, that Julia Turner not? has <laughs> set the bar low for um, <laughs> many, many things. Uh, I'll allow it. All right. right so in that case, my endorsement for this week is going to be over the holiday season, get yourself some whole cloves of nutmeg and a, and a little cheese grater and grate nutmeg on everything. <laughs> Oh my I endorse God. freshly grated nutmeg, which I just discovered over Thanksgiving break. My sister-in-law had never heard of freshly grated nutmeg. This kid Dan is having a put a bird on it moment. It's How so come cute. Julia gets away with her lemon slurry and I'm mocked for my nutmeg? <laughs> just something about the delivery. Just... Steam a fresh plate of broccoli, put nutmeg on it. <laughs> I'll put a bird on it. Dana, you're Open so your busted. laptop. That keyboard would look better with nutmeg all over it. <laughs> it's not the holidays without a nutmeg dusted keyboard. <laughs> because Dana, it's the difference between Nixon going to China in order to open up a communist country and a left winger doing it. Like the bonus. Fides issue here is hard to <laughs> evade. I've done my share of highbrow endorsements. I claim my nutmeg. <laughs> Connecticut <laughs> listeners, residents of the nutmeg state, will stand behind me. Have wait, a wait, new hold body on, of... hold on. 
Everyone pause. I'm, I'm sprinkling <laughs> nutmeg on my laptop. Right now. <laughs> I'm just going to say, we already know, of course, that nutmeg is good on things like hot chocolate, eggnog, <laughs> coffee foam. You've probably had it on spinach oh if you've God. been to a steakhouse, but try oh, grating nutmeg on. <laughs> Seriously. On pumpkin soup. <laughs> what else, Dana? Oh Where else we... of Dana. It's on someplace so Open dark. a new bottle of body lotion. Grate some nutmeg in there. <laughs> it smells good enough. Dab a little behind each ear on the way to a big date. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I don't know if it's called a clove, the nut, or whatever, the individual oval wrinkly nutmeg thing, but one of those will last you a year. Because it's such Not a at this flavor. rate. <laughs> That's right. You're going to be going through them by the day. Uh, oh, 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 my God. Uh, uh, all right, Julia, Julia, get me get me out of this all right. spasm. I have what two, do we have? Well, I had an endorsement, but I'm tempted to throw it out the window for a nutmeg-related endorsement. But I think I'm just going to uh, cut the baby in half, Steve style, and do both. Okay, I have endorsed this before. I think it might have been my very first or one of my very first endorsements ever on the Slate Culture Gab Fest. But a long time ago, Stephen Colbert did a Christmas. Special, I think for Comedy Central, and it was really fucking hilarious. And it was one of the first things that to me suggested the the sheer amazing dexterity and range and capacity of Stephen Colbert, who until then I had known only as kind of dry newsman, fake newsman. But he sang and he wore sweaters and he joyfully inhabited a fake tiny cabin and one of the guests on his special was John Legend and John Legend performed a song about nutmeg a Christmas <laughs> song about nutmeg that was basically like a very dirty slutty double entendre laced ode in which nutmeg was like a metaphor for sex slash his penis slash his general like lovin' his lovin' was the nutmeg and it's fucking hilarious. So um, I don't hate to spoil this for Chris Malanfi, but if it's not the outro, Anne, I'm going to be extremely disappointed. Um, The other thing I was going to endorse actually pertains to our third segment, and is much more boring than Nutmeg, but um, it is an app which has a terrible name, but great utility, called Nuzzle, N-U-Z-Z-E-L. So it's both a bad name and badly spelled. But what it does is comb your social feeds, so Twitter and Facebook, I think, are the two that are currently enabled, and then presents a list of articles that have been liked or shared by the people you follow. So then instead of checking Twitter and Facebook and getting caught in, like, endless Twitter canoes of weird back and forth that you have to trace back, you know, show conversation, understand what the fuck anybody is saying, you just get a list of, like, eight to ten articles that a lot of people you think are interesting think are interesting. And so you can kill your five minutes in line actually just reading three interesting things rather than scrolling through a hundred things to find which three things are interesting. Mm. And sometimes I actually would rather scroll through a hundred things and get caught in somebody's weird fight with somebody else I've never met and you sort of discover new worlds and encounter interesting corners of the internet. This tends to surface. One of its limitations is that if you are me, it surfaces a lot of Slate content that I'm already read and I'm already familiar with because I follow so many Slate people. But it allows you to find all the content shared by your friends. And then you can also swipe over and see all the content shared by friends of your friends, which helps get you kind of outside your networks a bit. Uh, it has a very cute hedgehog. Also, don't know why the hedgehog is nuzzling you. Don't know what the nuzzling has to do with reading lists. It all seems very oddly conceived and it's a little bit buggy, but I really am enjoying it. So I will recommend Nuzzle and hope that it's beta-ish seeming beta-ishness 
moves to an alpha relatively soon. Cool. Uh, so I'm going to endorse, um, uh, since we have fresh in our minds the f- warm, fuzzy Sylvester Stallone, which people probably feel they've seen too little of over the years in favor of the tan in a bottle, you know, walnuts in a condom, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, Rambo figure. That's a Clive James. I can't take, I can't claim credit for the single funniest witticism of all time. That's Clive James's description of uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. But anyway, uh, um, the, if you want more of that of the lovable human Sylvester Stallone, there's a very good movie from the '90s, an un- underrated movie from the '90s called Copland, starring Stallone. Dana, do you remember this one? It's by Mm-mm. James Mangold as the writer director. It's from the heyday of '90s Miramax. You know, intelligently made, interesting kind of. Um, you know, stunt casting, I'm not stunt casting, but Stallone plays an overweight, sad sack kind of brunt of everybody's joke. And it's, uh, it's intense. It's, I remember it as a terrific movie. I haven't seen it in a long time, but um, uh, highly recommended. And then secondly, um, the other night I was looking for something and I didn't know what I was looking for some piano music. Uh, I didn't want to go back to the Bill Evans well one more time. Inspired by a friend of mine, I put on some Red Garland. Red Garland is a uh, a jazz musician you don't hear enough about. He played with the Miles Davis Quintet back in the fifties during the heyday of that quintet. Uh, he is a just he's deceased now, but he's just a beautiful, beautiful jazz standard pianist of and blues player of the highest order. He's just a wonderful musician, and um, you can go on Spotify, find four or five uh, albums from his heyday in the 50s and 60s, and put them on, and um, it's just beautiful, deft, a jazz piano playing of the highest order. Red Garland, highly recommended. Thank you, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. This was so fun. It's nice to do a normal show. We've been so We've been on the road, we've had wonderful guests, but I don't think it's been just you know, a trois in our normal configuration for a while. Just you, me, and Steve's voice. Yeah. Mm. Put a bird on it. All right. (laughs) Great, great. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster on iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed, as always, is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julie Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. I'm Hannah Rosen, and I'm host of the Double X Gab Fest. Every episode, I'm joined by Noreen Malone and June Thomas, people I would talk to all day if I could. We talk about how the world is changing for women and men, at work, online, at home, and on the street. It's not a lecture. It's the conversation you want to have with your friends. Join us. So subscribe now where you get your podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply.